Our God and Father, you are our hope. We pray that you would just instruct us, conform our hearts to the image of your Son. Just this morning, we pray that uh, you would and just show in each one of our hearts areas and ways that we tend to put hope in other things other than you. We pray that you would just uh, bless this time and uh, may we worship you through, your stu- through the study of your word. Amen. So, Lamentations chapter 4. Let me start off, though, with a question. And uh, if, if somebody would like to give a definition, who can tell me what is an idol? What is a definition of an idol? Yes, ma'am. A false god. That is, that is absolutely correct. Very good. Very good. What might be even another way that we could describe um, in our lives today? Uh, what might be examples of what makes something an idol? I'm sorry? Yeah, absolutely. Something you desire above God. And I heard something over this way. Yeah, great. Some, where are you putting your trust? Absolutely. So you could say that an idol is anything that you're willing to sin to get or something that you're willing to sin if you don't get it. Um, I'll actually read you Tim Keller. He gives in his book, Counterfeit Gods, a uh, contemporary definition. He says, what is an idol? <clears throat> is, it is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living anymore. Do you turn to something other than God? You're turning to an idol. So, as we've talked about, and you can see on the top of your uh, handout, the theme of Lamentations that we've looked at for the past three uh, lessons is God's character demands that you and I turn to Him. If you look at it in light of idolatry, you could even change that, and this is what I've added to there, that theme could be God's character demands that you and I turn to Him alone. So, When the world is literally falling apart in Jerusalem, where does Jerusalem turn? Where does she place her hope? Let me change the question around for you. It says, when your world begins to fall apart around you, where do you place your hope? Where do you turn? If you are in an area of life where you are starting to need to look somewhere for hope, Lamentations 4 has words for you. Lamentations 4 was written for you who are feeling the pressure to turn somewhere other than to God. And and this lament, and if you remember, each chapter of Lamentations is a standalone poem of lament or sorrow. And so in this chapter, in this lament, we're going to have the curtain pulled back 
behind both the fall of Jerusalem as well as the extent of God's wrath on Israel. And we're going to see some of the inner workings of what is happening. The poem is actually broken into three different sections, and each section describes Jerusalem's fall in a different way. In each example that that Jeremiah gives, he's actually going to reveal something in which God's people could be placing their hope rather than him. The root of Jerusalem's fall is their idolatry. So as we go through our study and look at the chapter, I want you to keep an eye open for the idols that we see in, um, in, in the life of the Israelites. So Lamentations 4, it's going to provide us with these three sections. It's going to give three potential idols that are unable to sustain you while you're under the judgment of God. We're going to see that the societal foundations, they must not be your hope. And actually that Yahweh consumes Zion's foundations. We're going to see that religious leaders must not be your hope. That Yahweh actually scatters Zion's leaders. And thirdly, we're going to see that worldly helps must not be your hope. And ultimately, Yahweh punishes Zion's enemies. So, We're going to go ahead and start, and in the first 10 verses, we'll start by reading this, we're going to be presented with a snapshot of the collapse of Zion's social structure. And we'll see this repetition of the horrible condition that the foundation of Jerusalem's society finds itself. But then we're also going to see how this condition is a reversal from the way that it is intended to be. Things are not the way that they should be. So if you look at Lamentations chapter 4, and I think this is actually the point where two of the three weeks so far have said Galatians, and uh, I'm not going to mention Galatians. <laughs> so um, and Rod uh, chuckled, we, uh, we're going through Galatians and ISI, so that's where my mind keeps going to. But in Lamentations chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, uh, read with me. It says, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hand. Even the jackals offer the the breast, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. 
the hand of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. In these first 10 verses, we see that the societal foundations must not be your hope. These verses, they look at the most basic people in the society of Jerusalem, and they show how they have come to utter ruin. Now let's start at verse 1, where it says, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The first thing that Jeremiah does in this lament is he creates a metaphor for the people of Jerusalem to show their condition as they're under God's judgment. So this gold, it could actually be referring to the sanctuary. The sanctuary would have the gold lining the walls in gold utensils. Um, and it can show that, um, that it has changed. It has been destroyed. And there's several good commentators that actually would hold to that understanding. But I think there's actually a better understanding, though, of what the gold that Jeremiah is referring to, what, is, what it is actually doing. And I think it makes better sense to look at the second understanding, especially in light of where he goes in the next verses, where it says, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. Pure gold, and depending on your translation, it might say fine gold or good gold, it's often in Scripture used in conjunction with, I'm going to just say, normal gold. Um, and we see this combination in this first verse where it says, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold has changed. And the repetition where it talks about the pure or the fine gold. And in each of these cases, um, the pure gold is often talking about jewelry or gold that is woven into the clothes and worn as part of an attire. So... It'd be almost like the, the royalty or the wealthy would be wearing fine gold um, as part of their outfit. And we see examples of this in Psalm 45 and Proverbs 20, 23 are examples where we see the fine gold used in, um, in this manner. And so when we read this understanding that it's talking more about your clothing and attire rather than just the gold of the temple... This kind of explains a little bit more about how we might read verse 1 where it says, How the gold has grown dim... How the pure, the fine, the ornamental gold has changed. Now, gold doesn't change. It doesn't corrode. But it can become dirty. It can become dingy or filthy. And this is what has happened. The fine gold, the coverings, the jewelry, the fine gold of the people has dimmed and changed. So what does this let us know about the people themselves? Well, they are wearing this gold. They are the ones who also have had something happen to them. They also have become dirty, covered in dust and filth. And in verse 1, it actually even goes on a little bit further. And it says, the holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. And this is going to help us understand even a little bit more, where it says the holy stones, or possibly the sacred stones or sacred gems, depending on your translation, these actually are best understood to be the 14 stones that would be on the priest's attire as they are ministering before God. There would be two onyx stones and 12 precious stones or gems. 
And they all, each one of these stones that were precious, they bore the names of the tribes, the sons of Israel, and they were representatives of the tribes before God. And so in verse 1, it says, the holy stones, Yahweh's people, they lie scattered at the head of every street. Their fine gold that they've been wearing has changed. It has become dim. So let's flip back a a little bit. If you want to go back to Exodus 28, I want to read um, a little bit here. And this is just going to help solidify this picture for us. So Exodus 28, this is where we actually are first introduced to these stones that are being referenced in verse 1. So Exodus 28, starting in verse 9, it says, You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth. And as a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. And you shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, fine, fine gold. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before Yahweh on his two shoulders for remembrance. So notice what the two stones are set in, the fine gold filigree. So what is the purpose in Exodus 28? What is the purpose that we were given for those two stones, the onyx stones that had um, the names of the children of Israel engraved on them? Absolutely. Remembrance. Verse 12, Aaron shall bear their names before Yahweh on his two shoulders for remembrance. Now, look down a few verses later at verse 15 in Exodus 28. It says, you shall make a, be- a breastplate, play- uh, one more time, you shall make a breastpiece of judgment in, s- in skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, you shall make it. It shall be a square and doubled and a span its length and a span its breadth. And you shall set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius and topaz and carbuncle shall be the first row. The second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. The fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree, and there shall be 12 stones with their names according to the 12 names of the sons of Israel. And they shall be like signets, each engraved with his name for the 12 tribes. So back in Lamentations chapter 4, the holy stones, the anointed gems, bearing the names of the tribes, representing the people of Israel, they are scattered and lying throughout the city at the head of each street. The people of God are lying at the head of every street. How this shapes, this understanding, it shapes our understanding of the picture or the metaphor being painted in verse 1. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones, the people of God, lie scattered 
at the head of every street. This is a picture of the state of God's people by using the very items God provided to represent these people. Now, verse 2 through 10, it gives details of what it looks like to have Yahweh's precious stones, his people scattered through the street. You will see how the gold has dimmed. You will see how the bedrock of Jerusalem society is completely turned upside down. It's reversed. You will see how the societal foundations must not be their hope. Verse 2, it says, The precious sons, even the similarity there to the precious stones, the precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hand. One commentator says, verse 2 suggests that the gold and the sacred gems are more likely an appropriate metaphor for the people of Jerusalem, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, from Exodus 19.6. They now had as little value as clay pots, which were proverbial for their cheapness in ancient times. These precious stones, these sons, worth their weight in the fine gold, they are worth clay pots. How things have turned under the rod of God's wrath for them. These are the sons of Jerusalem, and what a sad reversal, but it gets infinitely worse than this. We can look at Jerusalem, the daughter of Israel, in verse 3. Where it says, even the jackals offer their breast, they nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. So the daughter of Yahweh's people are in worse states than her sons are. The daughter of Yahweh's people, it is actually the name for Jerusalem, the city as a whole. It's not the daughters of the city, but it's actual the daughter of Jerusalem, or the daughter of my people, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the daughter that has become cruel. Jackals, filthy, unclean dogs, they are kind to their young, but not Jerusalem. I want to read some verses from Job 39. You don't need to turn there, but this is going to expand our understanding of ostriches. Um, I think most of the ostriches we have in Texas are the ones we see like in a field when we drive by, and they are very tamed and domesticated. But the wild ostriches, in Job 39, it says, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions? Of plumage in love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that wild beasts may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. So Lamentations 4, verse 3, the daughter 
of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. Notice that we are dealing, again, with Jerusalem. This is not necessarily just speaking with a mother and her children, but this is the children of the corporate daughter of my people. Now, one of the traits of dogs, of canines, is that they foster others' pups if needed. And this is what jackals will do. They will care for the pups of others with needed, if needed. And dogs will even nurse and care for abandoned babies of other species. Um, I've got a picture I can show you on, my, on our phone. We just got some kittens with our dog caring for them and nursing them. Um, this is what dogs do. They, they are loving and caring to infants, even infants who aren't their own. This is the image of jackals. Even the filthy jackals will do this. They nurse and care for young. This is not how the daughter of Israel is behaving, though. They would not care for the infant victims of this calamity. And verse 4 just further illustrates this. It says, The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. Now, this is cruelty. What causes your tongue to stick to the roof of your mouth? You're dehydrated. You're thirsty. There's no water. But there was no, there's no shortage of water that is in Jerusalem. The city was actually supplied with a, a pool that was, had a tunnel built by Hezekiah, dug through the ground, that brought water from a spring outside the city in. There was no shortage of water in Jerusalem. In 2 Kings 20, in verse 20, it says, The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all of his might, and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? The compassion of the people of Jerusalem is gone. The tongues of infants swelled because no one bothered to quench their thirst with the water that was readily available. The infants that we saw in Lamentations chapter 2 who were dropping and fainting in the street were neglected. The mother's milk may have faded. The mothers may have fallen by the sword. The infants, they may have been abandoned. But now they're not even given the opportunity to slowly fade because of malnutrition. They are left by the people of Jerusalem to the quicker, more agonizing fate of dehydration and exposure. But the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches of the wilderness. And sadly, the infants, that's not just the extent of their cruelty. In verse 4 it says, the children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Food was scarce in the city during the siege, and the food that did exist, it was hoarded, protected, and definitely not given to children. Now let me ask for you personally, what is your instinct when a child says to you, Mommy, I'm hungry? It's either, okay, let me get you a snack, or worst case scenario, we're going to have food in 30 minutes. 
Now, grandmothers, how many grandmothers here have fished in their bag a purse for the little salad bar crackers to pull out and give to somebody else's child during a sermon? This is what we do. Our instinct is, is to satiate the cries of hunger from children. But the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. And one commentator said the term cruel can be used of those who are prone to brazen violence like the Leviathan of Job 41. To use such a harsh adjective with Israel's mothers is surprising. Nonetheless, that is the reality of the time. Mothers have become worse than even wild animals. No one gives food to the children, not even mothers. The sons, worth their weight in fine gold, has become as valuable as disposable pottery. The loving daughter has become cruel to where she neglects the infants and children to their deaths. And the degrading reversals of the foundations of Jerusalem's society continue. It gets even worse. In verse 5, those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. So those who ate cakes and foie gras, they now die of starvation. The families of great means cling to the smoldering ashes of their homes that are now burnt. Notice in verse 7, it says, Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Those whose skin had never been exposed to the harsh sun of midday, they'd never had the need of one of those booths we've spoken about previously that were giving shelter from the sun in a field. Those men's skin is now as wood There's no buying your way out of this disaster. There are only degrading reversals from where it should have been. This sounds pretty bad. So you can ask, could it be worse? And the poet here, he answers the question with no. This is the absolute worst situation. Verse 6. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands wrung for her. It is so bad in Jerusalem that the fate of Sodom was better than the fate of the sons and the daughters of Jerusalem. And so look at verse 6, and somebody tell me, why was Sodom's punishment less severe than the punishment on Jerusalem? What do you see in verse 6? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah, their destruction was instantaneous. The suffering moments before they were gone. Verse 9, it says, happier were the victims of the sword 
those who died quickly, than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced, not with the sword, but by the lack of the fruits of the land. Societal foundations must not be your hope. This truth is actually going to be summarized by Jeremiah with the final reversal, this final verse. He's going to show that you cannot, you must not put your hope in anything, even something as foundation, as simple as the foundation of our society. So look with me at the most sacred, the most foundational piece of any society in verse 10. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. We're not talking about the wretched mothers or that mother. We're talking about the compassionate ones. Those who were the most compassionate in society have eaten those who were once their own bundles of joy. And notice a key point here. It says, the hands of compassionate women. It's the very hands that once traced the outline of their infant's nose. The very hands that lovingly cleaned and washed the crevices of the the baby's fat folds in their legs. The very hands that tickled the lips of the sleeping infant, causing it to get that little pucker kiss. Those very hands boiled their own children. In Lamentations 4, we see and show that societal foundations must not be your hope. They are unable to sustain you when you are under the weight of God's bitter judgment. In each of these sections in chapter 4, and this is at the end of the first one, Jeremiah ends with a verse that basically describes the extent of Yahweh's destruction of that idol. And we see that in verse 11. So let's read this together. And we see Yahweh consume Zion's foundations. It says, Yahweh gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundation. Societal foundations must not be your hope. Let your only hope be the only one who kindles the fire under the foundations. These things can all be gifts from God. Loving parents, God has given them. God has given jobs and security, relationships. God has given families and neighbors and church family. We must remember that these are not what we must put our hope in. These are gifts from him who should be our hope. 
pray that God will help you to recognize the giver of these good gifts in your own life and recognize that he is the only one worthy of our hope. So let's look at the next verses. Starting verses 12 through 15, we're given a second idol that is unable to sustain you while you're under the, the weight of God's bitter judgment. Number two, religious leaders must not be your hope. So who can tell me, and maybe an E4M guy, what all of these passages have in, oh, Dexter, what do these passages have in common? So 1 Kings 14, verse 25, 2 Kings 14, 2 Kings 23, 2 Chronicles 21, 2 Chronicles 25, and 2 Chronicles 33. You got any, all those? <laughs> so each of these, they're passages that speak of Jerusalem being overrun, okay? <laughs> That's on the list. I'm working on memorizing that one, right? So let's start reading in verse 12. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that the foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. So in light of these verses that we just read, we we can really understand that this verse, this is poetic hyperbole saying that common understanding is that Jerusalem is mighty. Jerusalem's almost impregnable. But the point of this next section that we're talking about, it's not that Jerusalem fell. But rather, what we're going to see is why Jerusalem fell, has fallen. And verse 13 is going to tell us why. So the common understanding was that Jerusalem was strong, verse 12. But verse 13, this, the falling, this was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests. The prophets, they represented God to the people. They were the mouthpiece of God. The priests, they represented the people to God. They brought the offerings of the people to God. What an amazing accusation. Jeremiah is laying down that the fall of Jerusalem was for the sins of the mediators between God and man. What were the prophets and priests guilty of? Verse 13, who shed in the midst of her, in the midst of Jerusalem, the blood of the righteous. So here are a few verses I'm going to give you that just highlight the, pervasive, the pervasiveness of the wickedness of these mediators. In Jeremiah 6, 13, it says, For from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. Jeremiah 23, verse 11 says, Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house, I have found their evil, declares Yahweh. But when it says that the prophets and the priests shed the blood of the righteous in the midst of the city, is this an example of poetic hyperbole again? Unfortunately, it's not. In Jeremiah 26, it says, And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that Yahweh had commanded him to speak, 
the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, you shall die. Verse 14, it shows the corruption of these two offices of the prophet and priest that are responsible for the fall. It says, they wandered blind through the streets. Yahweh was not leading the prophets through visions. They were literally wandering through the streets with no direction from God. And then it says, they were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. And what is the prophet of the priest again? It's that mediator who brings the sacrifices from the people to God. The priest would wear a linen garment, a gown, that by the end of the day of offering sacrifices would just be drenched with blood. Now, these Lamentations 4 priests, they also were covered with blood, but it was not holy blood that belonged to God. These priests, even though that they were performing their priestly duties, they were defiled with unclean blood. They were unclean. If you were to look back at Lamentations chapter 2, and you can flip back there, in verse 9, so two chapters back, it says, the law is no more. The office of the priest. The law gave out the direction for those sacrifices. And it says, verse 9 also, and her prophets find no visions from Yahweh. The office of the prophet. In Jerusalem, the mediators between God and man have sinned and they have been rejected by God. And in verse 15, it shows they've also been rejected by the people. They say, away, unclean, the people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers, the prophets and the priests. And people said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The mediators between God and man no longer received either the protection from God nor the honor from the people. The people among the nations, these were the people of Israel in exile, they have rejected the prophet and the priests. They are now treated as those who had leprosy. Away, away, do not touch. They are unclean. And make no mistake about it, just as Yahweh himself lit the fire that consumed the foundation of Jerusalem society, Yahweh himself scatters the leaders of Zion. In verse 16, Yahweh himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Religious leaders must not be your hope. They are unable to sustain you while you're under the weight of God's bitter judgment. So the root cause of the destruction of Jerusalem, according to Lamentations chapter 4, is the failure of sin and sinfulness of the prophets and priests. Now remember in Jeremiah 17.9, this is a verse that you're probably familiar with, but it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. 
You cannot put your hope in man. Russ, I love you. Rod, I love you. But as great as you are, you are not my hope. Russ and Jason and Rod and even Dan, their role is to shepherd you, to teach and equip you, to guard and protect you. According to Hebrews 13, this says they watch over your souls and they will give an account, but they are not to be your hope. This is why Paul called the Bereans more noble-minded in Acts 17. They took Paul's teaching and returned to Scripture to test his words. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. As New Testament believers, our hope is only found in our God incarnate, our one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. So fathers... Your life, the life of your family does not depend on the fact that you bring your children to hear messages in Sunday school and church services. They depend on your bringing them to the God through the man, Christ Jesus. Mothers, your children cannot depend on behavior modification so that you're not embarrassed by them in public. Their only hope is that you introduce them to God through their prophet and priest, the man, Christ Jesus. So children, your hope cannot be that your parents love God, that you go to church, that you go to a good church where the leaders uphold the word of God and seek to conform you to that word. Your hope can only be to place your hope in Christ, the man, Christ Jesus. Lamentations 4 shows us that idols are unable to sustain you. The societal foundations must not be your hope. Your religious leaders must not be your hope. Yahweh consumes Zion's foundations. Yahweh scatters Zion's leaders. But Lamentations 4, it also shows us that worldly helps must not be your hope. Starting in verse 17, it says, Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains, and they lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, Yahweh's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Who recalls who Jerusalem repeatedly looked to for salvation? Go back to the chapters 1 and 2. Where did they repeatedly look to? Man, spot on. Not, I would have been happy with nations generally, but yeah, absolutely. The Egyptians, the Assyrians, 
They repeatedly looked to other nations for their salvation. Verse 17, it says, Our eyes failed, watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation that could not save. Jerusalem is doing what Jerusalem does. When she is in trouble, she turns to other nations. So remember, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, um, when Babylon came, she turned to other nations. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink from the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink from the waters of Euphrates? Meaning going to these nations when the Babylonians are here. So why does Israel repeatedly look to outside nations in times of trouble? Why do they do that? Any ideas? They clearly don't trust in the Lord. And the world tells them when you have a bully, you need to get a bigger bully. That's why they go to the other nations. In 2 Kings 18, we have Sennacherib of Assyria attacking Judah, and King Hezekiah, Hezekiah attempted to buy him off with the temple treasure. Why does he seek to buy off the invading Assyrians? Because the world says, if you're going to be destroyed, buy them off. Give them your treasures, because then they may let you live. The world's wisdom was the hope of Israel. And here's what's so sad about it. Notice how they clung to the world's hope until the bitter end. In verse 17, our eyes failed ever watching vainly for help. Jerusalem never wavered from their hope in what the world was offering. And notice the result. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. They were swifter than eagles. They chased us on the mountains. They lay wait in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, Yahweh's anointed, was captured in their pits. Worldly helps must not be your hope. They are unable to sustain you when you are under the weight of God's bitter judgment of sin. And once again, after showing the hope of Israel, Jerusalem, or Jeremiah clearly shows the certainty of the destruction of the nations that failed to come. And this is in verse 21. It says, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but, you also, to, but to you also this cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. And there's much that could be said right now about the relationship between Edom and Israel. But for our lesson, let's just summarize it by stating, Edom gladly sat back and allowed Babylon to come in and destroy the gates of Jerusalem. They were the closest nation that failed to come to the aid of Jerusalem. And Edom was most likely the nation to even assist Babylon in their pursuits of Israel in the mountains and catching them in their pits. In payment for this treachery against Yahweh's people, God lays out the certainty of their punishment. It will happen. 
So let me ask a couple questions, and this is where I really need you to look and answer this question for yourself. What worldly wisdom do we tend to place our hope in? What does your retirement plan look like? Is your hope in the fact that you stay out of all debt? Or is your hope in the, in the credit card, which ends up keeping you in debt? Your family? Government? Did your candidate win? Did your candidate lose? Does your hope wax and wane with the evening news cycle? Is your hope in the fact that people like you? What do you place your hope in? Do not follow the wisdom of the world. And if you are speaking with a brother or a sister who is struggling with placing their hope in anything other than in Christ, take them to Lamentations 4. Show them that in Lamentations 4, there's three idols that are unable to sustain you when you are under the weight of God's judgment. Societal foundations must not be your hope. Yahweh consumes Zion's foundations. The religious leaders must not be your hope. Yahweh scattered Zion's leaders. Worldly helps must not be your hope. Yahweh punishes Zion's enemies. Let's pray. Our God, we pray that you would allow us to place our hope in you alone. Open our eyes to the areas where we tend to look for help. We know that the world is full of areas that they say is our hope. May you give us the discernment to recognize that those are false hopes. They cannot support us when we are under the rod of your discipline. Our God, we pray that you would conform us to our Son who is your hope. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.